families really cared for the house that they received, the new design they received. The first one, obviously, um, they walk in and there's like a wall of plants and flowers and a random (laughs) aquarium cut into the wall that you can apparently see through. You can see through the fish tank into the bathroom. Um, I don't know if you caught that or not. Or out from the bathroom, I guess, if you're in the bathroom. And then the second one, um, they took this teenage girl's room and somebody just took a marker and was like, I'm going to draw some random crap on the wall and uh, call it uh, decor. And uh, didn't really, she, she was not, you thought it was cool. So um, just tell your parents that, um, you know, just to let you draw on your wall and be interior design. What's that? Yeah, I'd be glad to send you your, the, the video so you can show your parents what you want done. Absolutely not. No. So, all right, no questions right now. We're going we're gonna to move along. But this, this idea of uh, rehabbing or refurbishing or remodeling uh, a home is, is something that's really kind of taken uh, television by storm in the last several years. Um, I remember several years ago, it's probably been close to 20 years now uh, ago, really one of the first shows like this was um, a show called um, Extreme Makeover Home Edition, right? And so they would have the big truck out front. Do you remember that? And they'd move that truck. And then they would, they would uh, do all this stuff. And then they have where they were like redoing yards and um, all this kind of stuff. It's crazy. And then it got into like there was, the, they were doing this to like restaurants and everything else. So it was this, this idea of taking something that needed work and, and looking at it and seeing what issues needed to be addressed. And in often cases, kind of tearing everything out and starting over again and making something new out of the space that was there. And that's what we're going to look at tonight in the second half of Ephesians chapter 2. Last week we covered Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, where we saw how broken we are as human beings. How we were dead, floundering around in our sin and our trespass without a hope in the world. But God, being rich in mercy, sent Jesus to die on our behalf so that by grace we could be saved. And that we were created to do good works and to walk in that rather than to walk in our sin and in our death. And Paul continues writing here. Again, remember, um, as we read scripture, there were um, no chapters and verses um, back in the day. So we've kind of added those in. Um, but in chap- the second half of chapter 2, it flows, verse 11 flows straight in from verse 10. So I want us to read together verses 11 through 22 of Ephesians 2. And then we're going to look at uh, this idea uh, of what Paul is talking about. So, verse 11 of chapter 2. Paul says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in, his, in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So I want to look at this passage kind of with the, this background of this, these videos we just watched, this idea that, that we're looking at it through almost the, the lens of a construction project or a, a renovation project, that God is going to look at the situation and he is going to rehab, refurbish, or make new our lives, us as individuals, and his kingdom and his church all together. And so I have this kind of broken into three parts if you're taking uh, notes. The first step in this rebuild is the appraisal. Does anybody know what an appraisal is? Yeah, you see the, the, how much a house is worth. And we could call it the assessment if you wanted to. But essentially what we're doing is we are going to assess the condition of the structure or of the house. So before you purchase a house, before you decide to rent a house, before you decide to buy a house to flip it or fix it up or whatever, one of the very first things you're going to do is you're going to get an appraisal. You're going to see, like Lance said, what the, the house, the building, the structure, the property is worth. And in that, not only are you going to f- figure out what it is that it's worth, you're going to get an inspection to figure out what is wrong with it or what is right with it, right? So if you're looking at a, a house and you, you look at it, um, in all of these shows, they talk about this idea of what's called curb appeal. You know what curb appeal is? What it looks like from the curb, right? What it looks like from out front. Does it, does it draw you in? Does it have curb appeal? Does it look good? Does it have a pool? Does it have two stories? Does it have um, a garage? Does it, does it have three bathrooms or does it have two and a half bathrooms? Or, you know, how many bedrooms does it have? Is the, is the subflooring uh, strong or does the, flo- the carpet and the, and the tile need to come up uh, because you have to replace some of the... The, what's underneath? Uh, is the foundation good? What about the roof? All of these things you have to assess, evaluate, or appraise with something that you're about to purchase. And so this very beginning of this passage, God kind of lets us know what the status is of our condition or uh, what the value is or where we stand, okay? And throughout this passage, he's going to talk about uh, this idea of tearing things down and building things up. And there's a, a real theme here that, that Paul talks about. So the first thing is the appraisal. And, and with that, we see um, kind of the state of the, the structure. Verse 11, therefore, remember that at one time you who are Gentiles, so he's talking specifically to the Gentiles. What are Gentiles? People who aren't Jewish. Right, correct. Thank you. All right. And um, called the uncircumcision because Gentiles weren't circumcised. That was the sign of uh, the nation of Israel, uh, it was the, the physical sign of what it meant to be a Jew, okay? And so uh, he says that there's this dividing line between those who are circumcised, those who are uncircumcised, those who are Jews, those who are Gentiles, okay? In verse 12, it says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So the first thing I want us to see is that there was separation, He says that at one time, remember, verse 12, remember that at one time you were separated from whom? Christ or God, yeah. You were separated. The separation happens because 
Number one, they are sinful, right? And we know that sin separates us from God. But number two, remember that at first God chose the nation of Israel. Do you remember that in the Old Testament? God chose for himself a people. Remember he says to Abraham, he makes a covenant with Abraham very early on that he will bless the descendants of Abraham. And the descendants of Abraham end up being who? The Jews. Through Isaac and Jacob. Remember God changes Jacob's name to what? Israel. And then Jacob's 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. Do you remember that? And Joseph is banished to Egypt. He's sold into slavery. Remember that? And then his brothers come back and the 12 tribes of Israel are reunited in Egypt in slavery to the Egyptians. But God has chosen for himself a people and he sticks with them through thick and thin, even when they reject him. Throughout the Old Testament, through sin and rejection on their part, right, even while they're in exile in Babylon and conquered by the Medes, the Persians, eventually the Greeks, God stands by them. But the Gentiles are separated from Christ because of sin and because they're not Jewish. They're not God's chosen people. And so part of what God says is you are hopeless and helpless because you are separated from Jesus. And he's reminding the Gentiles of this. Remember what we talked about last week. We talked about how even though we are dead in sin, Christ made us alive because of his death, right? And so it's by our faith, right, in the grace of Jesus Christ that we now can become one with Jesus. We have now been brought from death to life. But what Paul does is right after that, right after he talks about grace and mercy and how Jesus has done all of the work, he says, therefore, remember, Gentiles, who you are and who you were. Because there was this constant battle in the early church between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Gentiles had this free gift of grace. Jesus Christ had died on their behalf. The gospel is being shared with them. They're coming to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The Jews are saying, hey, wait a second. We've been trying to live by the law for like the last several centuries. We've tried to live by the law. Our parents tried to live by the law. We've been really working at this really hard. Our people have been through a lot. Remember Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? There were lions, there were furnaces. The Red Sea thing, the plagues, the the death of the firstborn, the frogs, the journey through the wilderness. We had to eat manna for 40 years. Who are these Gentiles to just come in and get the the salvation? We've We've been working on it for a long time. And, and they begin to get very resentful toward the Gentiles. And the Gentiles, on the other hand, are kind of looking back at the Israelites and be like, hey, y'all are a bunch of legalists. Y'all just want everybody to follow the law. But we're just living a life that honors Jesus and not worried about the law. And they come, they come head on at each other. And so the Gentiles, after reading about this free gift of grace and mercy, are feeling a little bit, full of themselves. He's like, hey, look, we told y'all. We don't need the law. It's all about Jesus and his grace. And Paul reminds them, remember who you are and remember where you were. You were cut off from Jesus because you weren't chosen. You were separated. 
But then he also says, not only were you separated from Christ, but you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, if you keep reading right there. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The, the Gentiles were destined to be separated and alienated from not only Christ, but also from the nation of Israel, God's chosen people. All the promises and all the covenants that God made with Noah, that he made with Abraham, that he made with Moses, that he made with Joshua, that he made with David, those don't apply to the Gentiles. Therefore, his people, the Israelites. And the, the, the Gentiles are getting a little full of themselves here. Because you're like, hey, y'all been, y'all been trying to keep the law for a long time, making sacrifices, doing dumb stuff. You can't get tattoos. You can't grow your hair out past a certain length. You can't cut your hair a certain length. You can't shave your beard. You can't do all this, uh, this stuff. Women, you got to wear some head scarves and, and, and all this other kind of stuff. We can do whatever we want. We still got the same Jesus. Now what? And Paul says, hold on a second. You're getting a little full of yourselves. Remember where you came from. And remember that you didn't do anything to earn the love of Jesus, just like the Israelites didn't. Remember, you were cut off, separated, without God in the world. You didn't earn this. You don't deserve this. It's Jesus who has offered it up to you through his sacrifice and his resurrection. See, sometimes the the danger for us, guys, is that we get a little proud of ourselves, regardless of how we have come up. Some of you have been in this church or a church since you were in your mother's womb, and you've been here consistently, nonstop, for the last 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 years. You've gone to all the vacation Bible schools, you've done all of the youth choir stuff, you've, done, you've been here on Wednesday nights faithfully, you've come to Sunday school, you've had to go to all of the church stuff, and then all of a sudden somebody like rolls in who's like been living a life of sin, and one Sunday they're like, hey, I'm ready to get baptized and give my life to Jesus. And you're like, wait a second, man, I've been doing this for like 18 years, and you just, you get to live however you want for like the last 17 years, and you just walk in. And there can be some resentment, even if we don't say it out loud, there can be some resentment that, hey, I've been trying to live my life to honor God. I haven't been perfect, but I've been trying. And this person has been just living a life of sin, and they just walk in the door, and they're going to get the same eternity that I'm going to get. Doesn't seem fair. If we're honest with ourselves, some of us have said that. Or maybe you'll say that as you get a little bit older. Because there's going to come a point where you're like 35 or 45 or 55 or 65, and those people haven't been living crazy lives for 17 years, but they've been living crazy lives for 50 years. Or they're on their deathbed, and they're 85, and their whole lives they've rejected God and lived for themselves. And at 85 years old, they're going to see death coming, and they're going to make a decision to follow Jesus. And you're going to say, man, that doesn't doesn't really seem fair, because I've been having to do the whole church thing, the God, the Jesus thing forever. And then the opposite is also true where some of us kind of come in and, and we have the, you know, it's a relationship, not a religion thing where it's like, hey, I got Jesus, uh, I, I love Jesus, and it's a super like, uh, I'm more spiritual than you because I don't, I don't feel like I have to go to church or I don't feel like you, you have to read your Bible necessarily. It's just that me and, me and Jesus have this relationship. There's this love and this passion between us. And you're going to feel a little proud of yourself because you, don't, you feel like the other people are just kind of going through the motions of religion. And there's a danger on all these different sides for us to make things about us. 
And what Paul says is, remember who you are. And remember the condition you were in. It's like, it's like a couple walking into the house and be like, hey, this house is falling apart. The foundation's cracked. The roof is caving in. And they're like, hey, we got a budget of $15,000. And the designer comes in and says, here's what we can do. They're like, well, we actually wanted it to be a seven-bedroom, eight-bath home with a built-in uh, outdoor pool, heated indoor pool, um, full basketball courts, um, 16 stories. And um, it'd be really cool if it had a movie theater. And you're like, you just gave me a budget of $15,000. And it's kind of a remember, remember the condition of the house. Remember what you're bringing to the table. This is, this is kind of a, a, a wake-up call that Paul's delivering here. So this is the appraisal. But the second thing is the demolition. There's the appraisal. It's, it's where we stand. But then there's this demolition that happens. In every one of these little home projects, you don't just go put up new wallpaper or a coat of paint over cracked walls, sheetrock's falling in or, or whatever. Right? You don't just put on new flooring over old cracked flooring. You have to do some demo. So in verses 14 and 15, says, for he himself is our peace, that being Jesus, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Paul says that Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. There's this, this wall that's separating Jews and Gentiles from being one body of believers. Paul's gonna write a lot about the body of Christ, and how each individual member has a specific role and purpose, and they are nothing without the rest. But right now, what he's saying is there's this dividing wall that has divided, specifically in this case, Jews and Gentiles. He says, Jesus, by his death, has torn the wall down. Because once upon a time, salvation and God's, God's kingdom was only for the Israelites, but Jesus, in his death, destroys that wall and says, now the gospel is open to all of humanity, Jew and Gentile. And Paul's going to talk a lot about coming to the Jews first and then coming to the Gentiles. And see, the death and the resurrection of Jesus tears down every wall of hostility on the planet. Specifically here, he's talking about Jew and Gentile, but it tears, Paul's going to write later about how it, it separates the slave and the free, the rich and the poor. Those who have known him for a long time and those who just now got to know him. For us in our context today, it should tear down every wall of division in our lives. It should tear down cultural differences, ethnic, racial, linguistic. All of the divisions that we can think of, the wall is torn down. And Paul writes uh, later in 2 Corinthians that now... Right? We regard no one according to the flesh, right? Because we are new creations. Now we see things through the eyes of Jesus Christ. So now we are either dead in sin or dead to sin. Either we are in desperate need of encouragement in Christ because we know Jesus, or we are in desperate need of coming to know Christ because we're in need of salvation. So Jesus, by his death, destroys the wall of hostility that separates. Jew and Gentile, but also separates you from people who don't look like you, think like you, talk like you, come from where you come from, believe the same things that you believe. And now he has offered the same redemption to
to you as the person sitting across the room from you tonight or the person sitting next to you in class or the person across town or the person around the globe, the person that speaks the same language that you do and the person that doesn't speak the same language. The person who's praying on a prayer mat five times each day to Mecca and thinking that Allah will save him through the prophet Muhammad, Jesus died for that person the same way that he died for you. The difference is they've bought into a lie and you have truth. So now rather than looking down on that person and saying, he's a Muslim, she's a Muslim, he's a Hindu, she's a Hindu, he's a Buddhist, that's really stupid, he's a Mormon, uh, they're uh, uh, an atheist, whatever, how stupid can you be? Rather than seeing people that way, we see people, that person is bought into a lie. I have the truth, I have hope in Jesus Christ, and I will do anything in my power to bring the truth to them in love and compassion because they were made in the image of Christ and Christ died for them, just like they died for me. The wall of hostility has been torn down. But also, specifically talking about the Jews and Gentiles here, the next part is um, that he abolishes uh, the law of ordinances, the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. What he's saying here is that one of the things that was separating Jews from Gentiles is this, the Levitical law, the ceremonial customary law of the Jews. And there's a lot of that, that that Jesus, by his death, he says that he didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. But there's a lot of that stuff that was specific to Israel when they were living in a pagan society in and around the promised land. And God gave them those laws, those customs, and those ordinances so that they would look different than the world around them. It's contextual. But now he says that I have taken away all of these things that would separate you because I want to bring you together. Because you're not saved by the law. You're saved by what or by whom? The blood of Jesus Christ, absolutely. And so he says, I've torn down the dividing wall, but I've also bridged the gap by doing away with these ordinances that would have separated you. Because I desire oneness. Jesus Christ died so that we might be saved and the Father might be glorified, but also to bring humanity together in himself. Now be careful, because sometimes we confuse unity with, with, with this. It's, it's one thing to be unified, but it doesn't do you any good to be unified if it's not unified biblically. Does that make sense? The church can be unified on a lot of things, but if we're not unified in the gospel, then unity could send us all to hell together. So what Paul desires, what God ultimately desires, is for us to be unified in Jesus Christ. Not unified in what makes us comfortable, not unified around policy or uh, the world around us or culture or what makes us comfortable, but to be unified in Jesus Christ and what he looks like and who he is and what he says. So Paul says that God has removed any division. Remember in, uh, in Acts chapter 2, what we call Pentecost, Peter preaches this message, and every tribe and every tongue is gathered around to hear Peter. He's speaking in one language, and yet everyone in attendance can hear in their language what Peter's saying. And, and Scripture says thousands that day came to know Jesus Christ, and the church of Christ was born. We just sang about it. And who lit the flame? The Spirit, Acts 1.8. You will receive power when the Spirit is upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. And it's incredible. We talked about the Holy Spirit a couple weeks ago. It's what happens in Acts 1 and Acts 2. 
The Holy Spirit falls upon the believers, and suddenly every cultural barrier, every linguistic language barrier, every ethnic, every racial division is brought down through the power of the Holy Spirit, and people, no matter what they look like, what country they've come from, what they sound like, what baggage they're bringing to the table, they come to know Jesus and are made part of the global church. God has removed division. He's removed hostility. The only division, the only hostility that remains is because of us and the sin in our lives. And so if there's division, if there's separation keeping you from loving, being compassionate toward other people created in the image of God, that's a you problem and not a God problem. There are no barriers left. It's on us to be spirit-filled and to be loving and compassionate. And Paul's reminding the Gentiles and the Jews of this right here. So we have the appraisal, then we have the demolition, and then we ultimately have the construction. There has to be construction that happens because he's going to rebuild this thing or build it new, I guess. I have three things here, okay? First is he's going to build God's kingdom, okay? God's kingdom. So verses 16, we have to hurry, sorry. Verses 16, um, that he might reconcile us, or reconcile the two, So, um, sorry. He might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Okay, and so this first part, he's building God's kingdom, okay, um, in, in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. See, those Gentiles were homeless, right? They didn't have a nation. It's funny, we refer to Jews or Israelites as one nation, but we refer to all the Gentiles, all of the other many different cultures and nationalities as just one group of people. Basically, they're the haves and the have-nots is how we refer to them. Until Jesus. So God is building his kingdom. One of the three things he's building here in this passage is his kingdom. And Paul's going to reiterate over and over again that your citizenship is not of this world, but it is where? In heaven. And guys, here's what I, here's what I desperately need us to hear. Whether we're 12 or we're 112, your citizenship, if you are in Christ, is not of this earth. See, there's this subtle difference of, of how we look at things. We're, I'm going to say this in this context because we're all Americans, okay? We all live in America. Whether we were born here or we took a citizenship to become a citizen or whatever, we are Americans. We were adopted and made citizens, doesn't matter. We're all in here citizens of the United States. There's one of two ways as an American and a Christian you can view things. One, you can view yourself as an American who happens to be a Christian, or you can view yourself as a Christian who happens to live in America. See, one puts the priority and the emphasis on your earthly citizenship, and then you also have your heavenly citizenship. The other focuses on your heavenly citizenship, and then you use your current citizenship and your context in America to glorify God because you're actually a citizen of heaven. And it's a subtle difference, but it's a big difference. And God here doesn't talk about how I'm building a, a nation of people 
By the way, America didn't exist at this point, nor did a lot of the countries in the world. He's saying, I'm building my kingdom, an eternal kingdom. And that's where your citizenship resides. He says, you were once strangers and aliens cut off, but now I've brought you all together. And what unites you is not what you look like or where you come from or what you speak like. What unites you is the blood of Jesus Christ. So he's building his kingdom, but he's also building his family. The second part of verse 19 says that you have been brought into the household of God. I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have much time. You've been brought into the the household of God. We looked at this in Ephesians 1. You are joint heirs, co-heirs with Jesus Christ. There's an inheritance already guaranteed, already bought and purchased and waiting for you as family members in God. You are part of the household of God. You are part of the kingdom of God, an eternal nation. But you're also part of the household of God. It's also an intimate relationship that you have with God. It's corporate, it's huge, it's macro, but it's also micro. It's also personal and intimate. And God has invited you and brought you into that. And God's household is not monochromatic. It's not monolinguistic. It's not bilingual. It's not trilingual. God has brought us all into his household as well as his kingdom. And finally, we got to hurry. God's also building his temple. To me, this is one of the coolest visual illustrations in all of scripture. I'm a very visual person. I, you know, I like movie clips and I like, I like to see things. I write out all my sermons on a dry erase board like 50 times because I need to see it. I need to move things around and be able to visualize it. Verse 22, or verse 20, let's start in verse 20. So he talks about being a household of God. And he says, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's this really cool picture where he he does like three things. Actually, uh, you can look at my dry erase board right now in my office, and I I drew a picture of this because it helped me understand it. You've seen a brick wall before, right? If if you haven't, you can just walk outside and see one. You can actually go walk in front of the sanctuary, the main doors of the sanctuary, and you'll see all of these elements. Paul says that that the foundation, right, you know that slab of concrete that your house is built on, right? That that slab of concrete is the foundation. It's what bears all of the weight of the structure. If the foundation gives way, what happens to the rest of the house? It's why Jesus teaches about the man who built his house on the sand and the man who built his house on the rock. The rock was good because it was a firm foundation, right? And so Paul says that the foundation is made up of the apostles and the prophets, the teaching of the word of God, those who have come before us and illuminated and given us the scriptures, the foundation that this temple is being built on is the foundation of the prophets and of the apostles. It's what holds the whole structure up because if that begins to give way or we begin to lose sight of what they've taught us in his word, the whole thing is gonna crumble. So the foundation is the apostles and the prophets. And then it says that there's this cornerstone. Have you seen a cornerstone? Again, if you haven't seen one, there's one you can see. You can go look right out there in front of the sanctuary. The cornerstone is this this huge block that, that connects everything together. And it says, who is the cornerstone? Jesus Christ. You've sung about it before. Christ alone, cornerstone, right? 
weak made strong, right? Because of the strength of the cornerstone. None of this works apart from Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone. And then there's this beautiful picture. It says that each individual believer is like a brick or a stone being added to the structure. So imagine this huge structure where there's this giant foundation, a firm foundation built on the apostles that have gone before us and the prophets, on the Micahs, the Malachi's, the Obadiah's, the Nehemiah's, and the apostles, Paul, John, and Peter. And it, they, they've laid the foundation, and Jesus himself, God, and the Son of God, stuck right there, bearing the weight. And then you and I and all of the, the followers and believers of Jesus Christ throughout all of history, past, present, and future, are being added onto the structure like little stones, And it doesn't say that there's some Jewish stones over here and there's some Gentile stones over here or that there's another building over there where the Jewish stones are and the Gentile stones are going to be here or the black ones are going to be over here and the white ones will be here and the Spanish-speaking ones will be there and the English-speaking will be here and the French-speaking will be over here and the people that, that knew him for a long time will be here and the people that knew him for a little time will have a smaller building. It says every believer throughout all of history, no matter who they are, what they've done is united in Jesus Christ, is being laid together, joined together with mortar, and built into God's temple. And that last passage in verse two, 22 says that it's a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. And what God is building is his church, his global, infinite, everlasting church, made up of his word, made up of his son, and made up of all who have come to know him. So Paul says, lest you think that you did any of this, remember you were strangers and aliens cut off without a God in the world. But through my son, the wall of hostility has been torn down. And now I'm joining you together Brick by brick by brick by brick and building you into this beautiful temple in which the Holy Spirit will dwell so that all of humanity will see who I am as they see who you are. Guys, this is an incredible picture. But it's our responsibility to allow ourselves to be placed next to bricks that don't look like us, who don't come from the same places that we come from. To quit boasting in ourselves and boast in Christ and him alone. Then this beautiful structure will be able to be an incredible display, not of our glory, not of how great of a brick that is, the third one from the bottom, eighth one from the left. But how the structure, the church, was built by God. And he will receive the glory and the honor as a result of it. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful, God, that you would use us as bricks in your temple. God, no one in this room, certainly I, 
do not deserve to even be a part of it. God, yet by your grace and your mercy and your providence, God, you have decided, God, to allow us to be part of your kingdom, part of your family, and part of your temple. God, I pray that you would allow us to join together across the room, across town, around the globe, from generation to generation. God, and be a reflection as the church of who you are. Not so people would look at us and say, oh, aren't they so welcoming? Aren't they so loving? God, but they would look at us and say, man, they look like Jesus. And I want to I look like Jesus too. And I pray that you would give us both the opportunity and the courage to be light, to be salt in a dark and hurting world. God, we ask all these things in your name. Amen. Love you guys. Y'all are free to go.